day to you all. I hope that the sun shines favourably on you wherever you are, and if not, that the rain, sleet or snow is drumming a pleasant rhythm on whatever roof you find yourself under. My name's Kevin Brown, and I am your host on the Tom Petty Project podcast, a podcast dedicated to looking at every Tom Petty song on every Tom Petty album. Some would say that it's an indulgent, unnecessary vanity project, and they'd most likely be right. But the beauty of the world we live in is that I can share my ramblings with an uninterested world on the off chance that two or three people might enjoy them. Today we're talking about track four from the debut Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album, The Wild One, Forever. As always, pause now and go listen to the song, then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Wild One Forever is a firm favourite among Tom Petty fans, but was another song that was very rarely played live after 1980. The song was included on the B-side of the US version of the original single release of Breakdown. And in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom says that although the song is one of his wife Dana's favourites, he can't always play everyone's favourite song, not even his wife's. So that maybe gives it more of a cult status, because it's certainly not one that a casual listener necessarily knows. Every hardcore fan has those deep cuts by bands that they love. For example, in my opinion, It's Late from News of the World is the greatest Queen song that nobody knows. And for a lot of Tom Petty fans, I think The Wild One occupies that same kind of space. The song starts out very simply, with a gently strummed acoustic guitar part, and I find it really interesting in a geeky way that there's an accidental guitar note in the right channel in the opening bar. It feels somewhat uncharacteristic to leave that in, or perhaps even professionally sloppy, but it kind of adds to the raw, live-off-the-floor energy of the song. And I'd be willing to bet, though, that Jimmy Iovine, Jeff Lynne, or Rick Rubin wouldn't have left that in, and you'd never really notice it if it wasn't there. But it's a little anomaly that I like. Kind of like Keith Moon coming in about 20 BPM too fast on The Who's Baba O'Reilly. The guitar is panned hard left, and the piano, when it comes in, is panned hard right. And I really do love that very deliberate separation of sound. Honestly, listening to music under a good pair of headphones is just one of the great joys of life, as you hear so much more of the detail and you experience what the producer was doing in the mix, as well as what the band was playing. Stan's drums are recorded really flat in this one, without a ton of reverb. They have a really small room feel to them, while the guitar's piano and vocals are all quite atmospheric. So the rhythm section is really clean, and it cuts through and guides the track like a set of train tracks steering a big piece of steel. Stan really sits on that bell in the verses, and that chiming treble clarity matches Tom's vocal delivery beautifully. The song sees Mike Campbell really sitting deep in the pocket and not soloing or accenting too much. The guitar line is basically a suspended arpeggio running over the second and fourth notes. And in sitting further back than on those first three tracks on the album, Mike and Benmont really just give balance to the drums, bass and vocals, which are the parts that sustain the anxious energy of this song. The acoustic guitar uses a great up pick too, which adds to the really treble heavy feel throughout. Stan definitely gets more rope to play with in this one and has some solid Tom-led fills that are delicately handled. Ron plays a really steady, unobtrusive bass line and is really just holding the bottom end together on pretty much every song on this album. Again, the treble is pretty high everywhere else on the song, from the cymbal-heavy verses, Tom's higher-pitched delivery and that guitar lick, so the bass actually stands out more because of that. Going back to Mike's simplicity in the guitar part, we get some different guitar accents only late on during the outro, and it's a very subdued guitar part that lets the drums and vocal carry the weight of the song. 
Benmont does the same thing with that really simple suspended D and C pattern. And if you think about a lot of the 80s hair metal ballads, they took this template and tortured it to death. A simple suspended chord verse releasing into a more standard rock chorus. All these intricacies of arrangement, though, are all designed to complement what might just be the best vocal performance on the album. Because the song is all about Tom's urgent, despairing vocal and lyrics. A game-flipping convention on its head, the chorus ends up being quite a lot more wordy than the verses, which are more ephemeral, with the payoff then becoming more passionate and more personal. I absolutely love the lead back out of the chorus too. It's fairly formulaic, progressing slowly down through D, C, B minor, A, and it's not an earth-shattering progression, but when it's applied this well, it fits perfectly within the song. And Tom was the absolute master of simplicity so often. When you listen closely, buried in the mix a little is a, a muted, distorted guitar on the left channel, which gives the chorus just a little change in personality and pads out the sound slightly, so it's less spartan in how it feels. Added into this sonic build in the chorus is a Ron Blair cello part, which Tom, again in conversations with Tom Petty, comments on. He doesn't play the cello, but he just fashioned out enough that he could play the chorus part. If you remember, last week we were talking about Charlie Sousa playing sax on Hometown Blues in a sort of, well, see if you can do it way, and so Ron picking up a cello seems to be quite fitting. And like those sax stabs, that bit of bass texture the cello brings to the chorus really works. These subtle additions add to that transition between yearning and acceptance in the lyrics. The song never really just goes full rock and roll, and you could easily build this into a frenetic, distorted, you know, Mike slaying it on guitar jam, but it wouldn't really fit the tone of the lyrics at all, which have that unrequited love feel to them. Just reminds me of being 17 and dating someone your parents or friends just don't get, and not understanding why the world can't see that actually this is the greatest romance since Romeo and Juliet. In reality, adolescent heartache never involves well-dressed young men holding up boomboxes outside their girlfriend's window, unfortunately. The drums drop out at key moments, then come back in and they're spare and then heavy, and Benmont adds in some extra energy to the piano line, but again, it's very in the mix and not leading anything. That reservation and release is again very familiar to anyone who's been in love when they were young and frustrated that this wasn't happening like it does in the movies. Paul Zolo told Tom that he thought that the song sounds as if it could have been Springsteen-inspired, and that was definitely one of my first impressions of this one too, or maybe a sort of visceral reaction to it. Along with Rebels from Southern Accents, it has that same, I don't know quite how to describe it, other than a Bruce vibe to it. But Tom said that back then he really wasn't listening to Springsteen, so we're likely looking at a case of convergent evolution that shows that the experience of young Americans was pretty much identical in both the South and in New Jersey. The song has that real shared experience of teenage frustration to it, with the protagonist bemoaning the fact that he's in love with a rebel who doesn't fit society's norms. Okay, it's time again for some petty trivia. Last week's trivia question was a more niche one, I think, and today's follows a similar vein of obscurity. Last week I asked you which song was the opening number for the Damn the Torpedoes tour in 1979-80. The answer is Shadow of a Doubt, A Complex Kid, which was a staple until 1981 and then revived in 2002 for the last DJ tour. Today's question is this. Which artist released the Grammy award-winning album The Missing Years in 1991, which saw Howie Epstein in his debut as a producer and most of the Heartbreakers play on the record? Okay, let's get back to the song. The Wild One Forever feels a little like a John Hughes movie played out in three minutes. To me, it's a tale of teenage angst, and it throws me back to being about 
I think I was 14 or 15, somewhere around there, and in a high school production of Gilbert and Sullivan's musical, The Mikado. I had a small part in the chorus line in the production. I also had the hugest crush on the girl who was playing the lead. And one evening in the school, an older boy who was a mutual acquaintance and part of the production as well, arranged a rendezvous for us. As I stood hopelessly in the doorway of a dimly lit music room, he told me as he left to go and stroke her hair while she was playing piano. I know it sounds a bit weird, but just go with it. I distinctly remember that she let me touch her neck in quite a sensual way as she played Beethoven, quite well as I recall. I remember clearly thinking then that I'd do anything, including die, to be with her. But being a spotty, skinny, nervous kid and not having any sort of moves or any sort of confidence that could facilitate such a situation, needless to say, the moment passed fairly quickly and fairly awkwardly. Any hint of romance just died on its arse as my throat closed and I couldn't say anything. There's really only so long you can run your fingers through a girl's hair without saying anything until it gets a bit weird and really awkward. I don't think I ever talked to her again as I was too embarrassed and too terrified to look into the eyes of someone who I'd completely baffled. But that sense of absolute heart sickness and longing and crying into your teenage pillow is what always hits me whenever I listen to this song as it captures that mood absolutely perfectly. Okay, that's episode four in the bag. Don't forget to go back and listen to the song again, and while you're listening, try to summon an image of your high school crush and see if you get the same shivers I always get when I listen to this song. The Wild One Forever would probably be the best song on this album if it weren't for that pesky breakdown, or American Girl. I do have to rate this one really highly though, and I'm going to give it a score of 8 out of 10. It's one of the best Tom Petty deep cuts, and one that has been on my playlist forever. I can't quite put it up there with the absolute top echelon of Petty songs, simply because his songwriting grew in such an extraordinary way as he got older. But that sense of nostalgia that it invokes in me makes it a really special song. Thanks as always for hanging out with me, and feel free to comment if you have anything to say about the episode, or about the show in general. Next week, we'll be talking about anything that's rock and roll. Track five on the album, and the last song on side one. It would be super cool if you would subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and leave a rating if you like. Remember to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, at Tom Petty Project or at The Tom Petty Project on Instagram and let me know what you think. Don't forget to join the Tom Petty Nation Facebook group, as I told you last week. And if you're a SiriusXM subscriber, you really need to check out Tom Petty Radio. You'll get killer content from Mark Felsot, Steve Ferrone and Tom Petty fans known and unknown, as well as Tom's not-to-be-missed Buried Treasure Show. You should check out the live version of The Wild One from the live anthology, which I'll, I'll post in the episode notes, along with a killer acoustic version from 1988 at the Bridge School Benefit, which is slowed down to it's almost half tempo. And finally, thanks to everyone who has and is listening. I've been really pleasantly surprised at how many people out there are taking time out of their lives to share my passion for Tom's music, and I hope we can continue our relationship for the next five years or so. Today I'm going to leave you with a poem about music by a poet named Lucy Rudman that I found online. I feel that it expresses very well how Tom Petty connects with us all so intimately. Where words fail, music speaks. It speaks of the pain, of the sorrow, of the lost, of the life we live. It shares emotions. It's a way to connect, to understand what others feel. Where words fail, music speaks. It tells the truth, whether you want it to or not. Music shares the souls of those we're around, of those in the world that we're living I wish to share my music with you, so you can understand the pain I feel, so I can share my soul with you, so you can understand what I'm going through. Until we meet again next week, folks, be lovely to each other and fire up some Tom Petty on your devices, in your cars, and on your turntables. Bye-bye. <laughs>